right. I want to say good evening to the members of our church and our community who are watching online. Thank you for being with us as well. So uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we're getting started here. Matthew chapter 6, specifically uh, in verses 9 and 10. Is, uh, is where we're going to be tonight. So, uh, we are now in the third week of a series titled One God Under Nation. And this series is intended to help us as Christians to navigate the political minefield that we now inhabit. We are now only four weeks away from the presidential election, and things have not gotten any calmer. Uh, I think you would agree with me that if anything, things have gotten less calm considerably less. And the closer and closer we get uh, to the election, it seems to grow in tension. So the, in, the intention here of this series is to give us biblical principles, wise biblical application to help us glorify the Lord and, uh, and love others while we decide how on earth to participate in the political process. Um, If you have missed either of the first two sermons of this series, I urge you to go back on the podcast or on the Facebook page and watch those two messages because they set the foundation for this series. And so uh, they are what the rest of these messages are built upon. So if you have missed those, please go back. Um, For those of you that have heard those messages, you know that I've been big on disclaimers uh, so far in this series. Uh, because I know that politics is one of the most divisive topics um, on planet Earth. It is an incredibly polarizing thing to talk about. That's why they say when you go on a first date, you never talk about politics or religion. My opinion is you should, because if you're going to be with this person, you need to know. Why waste your time? Okay, let's talk about it. Um, The intention is not to be divisive. Okay, the the intention is not to purposely um, be... Um, bothersome. However, that being said, I need to reiterate uh, a few things. And that is, first of all, that I am not going to tell you who to vote for, okay? I have no interest whatsoever to use this series to support or to attack any political candidate, party, platform, policy, whatever. That's not my job. Um, I am not going to tell you where to put your ballot. My only job is to tell you where to put your heart, and that is with the God of the Scriptures. And so um, I'm going to hopefully just give us biblical principles, and then you will prayerfully decide how you apply those in the political process. Secondly, once again, I am very likely going to say things that offend you. We have people from a wide range of political and religious and socioeconomic backgrounds that are represented in this church, which I love very much. And so that means since all of us don't think the same way, which is awesome, that means that some of us are going to be offended at various points through this series. Hopefully, I'll offend all of you, okay? Hopefully, I will be equal opportunity in the things that I say that that may be offensive. In the midst of that, I hope that we'll stay unified. In the midst of that, I hope that we will uh, see the bigger goal, which is following after Jesus. 
And then the final disclaimer that seems kind of crazy for me to even say is uh, I don't hate America. And so there are things that I might say in this series that make you go, my, how unpatriotic. My goal is not to be unpatriotic. My goal is to simply give us our priority, which is the kingdom and the king of that kingdom. So once again, let me go over the six biblical principles that we're going over in this series. Uh, The first was in week one. We looked at Psalm chapter 146, and we talked about the fact that we serve a king, not a president. That our hope is not in who is sitting in the Oval Office, okay? Whoever inhabits the White House does not change the fact that Jesus inhabits the throne. The battle belongs to the Lord, not to whoever wins in November, Okay, so our hope has to be in the God of eternity, not in a person who will have at most eight years in a political office. Okay? Then we talked last week about our hope being in a kingdom, not in a country. That our hope is not in a glorified America, our hope is in a glorified kingdom of God. We talked about the fact that the church is the new Israel not America, okay? And so when we look at the promises of God in Scripture, those promises apply to the church of Jesus Christ, not to red, white, and blue Americans, okay? God is the God of every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Today, what we'll be looking at is number three, and that is that we fight for change from the heart outward, not from the hands inward. Um, I'll explain as we go on. Next week, I'm looking forward to, um, and, and that is the fact that we fight against the enemy of the people, not against people as an enemy, okay? We should not be, as Christians, attacking others, and yet that is what so many people are doing. Uh, a five-second scroll down Facebook will reveal so much vitriol, so much hatred, so much keyboard warrioring and yelling and screaming at each other that it accomplishes nothing. Can I give you a little hint before we get to next week? You will not change anyone's opinion with your Facebook status. There you go. That's a free tip. So just in case you were hoping to change the world with whatever you type into Facebook, let me just say it doesn't work. All right. So let's step back and figure out a better strategy. Um, And then in week five, we'll talk about the difference between a democracy and a theocracy and which one we're trying to participate in. And then finally, in week number six, we'll talk about the fact that we are guided by prayer, not by panic. Now, this is, uh, is all tentative, I, I should say. Um, it, it's kind of based on uh, Juliana Goso's schedule, okay? Our little baby could come any day. So, if it so happens that our little one decides to come on a Sunday, there still will be church. I will not be here, but I hope that you will. And Daryl will be filling in. Um, so, uh, we'll keep you guys posted uh, we were, were putting the kids to bed last night, and uh, Eli says, hey, I have a question. So what if mom's water breaks and we're at church? What's the plan? And I was like, well, the plan would be at that point, uh, we leave. And he's like, really? We would just leave in the middle of church? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what would you do? And I'm like, I would say, okay, you guys uh, clean up. 
somebody pray, we're going to go. All right? And that's as simple as it is. So, everything that we have in this series is uh, tentative, um, depending on the schedule for our little baby. So tonight, we focus on principle number three. Now, regardless of your theological or political views, everyone can see the brokenness in our world. We look around and we see selfishness. We see racism. We see bloodthirsty people who are exploiting power. We see sexual predators who are taking advantage of countless victims. We see lust for money leading to exploitative power structures. We see people being dehumanized, marginalized, used, ignored, abused, denied rights, stripped of dignity, and cast out. We see privilege and we see lack of privilege. We see bias. We see blindness. We see bribery. And those are just the human forces that we have choice over. In addition to those human forces that we ourselves cause, we also must face the forces of a seemingly murderous universe bent on killing us through disease and natural disasters. So, in the face of that, in the face of all of those things, what is it that we crave? What is it that we long for? What is it that we are hoping for? Humanity craves utopia. Humanity craves utopia, a perfect world. And we've come up with a billion different strategies, philosophies, religions, political ideologies, campaigns, all with one goal in mind, and that is getting us to utopia. We long to be in a world where people are treated equally, where all of us love one another, where racism and injustice are no longer present. We long to be in a world where everyone is fed, everyone is sheltered, everyone is clothed, where every need is met, where people of every single demographic can hold hands and share a Coca-Cola together. All over the world, throughout history, Countless attempts have been made to create utopian societies. If you'd like a fascinating uh, time uh, to spend walking through history, I encourage you this week to Google failed utopias. uh, And you will read some very interesting accounts. Accounts like Brook Farm in Massachusetts in the 1840s where a colony was built on the idea that shared labor and shared resources would prevent poverty and crime. This also prevented any kind of prosperity, and gradually all the able-bodied people moved away and the community collapsed. Or you might read about the Shakers 
uh, founded in England in the 1700s. When the Shakers came over to America, they built their utopian society on the grounds of racial segregation, I'm sorry, gender segregation and celibacy. Can you guess what happened very quickly? There were no babies that were had, and they all died off, and the Shakers came to an end. Or did you know that Henry Ford, yes, that Henry Ford, attempted his own utopian society called Fordlandia? Fordlandia, his failed attempt, took place in Brazil, where he decided to build a town based around the production of rubber and rubber plants that would be used to feed the auto industry and make tires. But as it turns out, he knew more about cars than he knew about Brazilians. And so Fordlandia ended in revolt. Then there's Drop City. Drop City was founded in 1965 by a group of hippie college students living in homes made from scrap metal. This particular effort lasted three years, though I'm sure that seemed much longer when you're high. And after that, it was abandoned. But did you know that one of the most famous businessmen of all time, a man that has influenced every single one of us directly, had a vision for a utopian society? And some of you may have even visited this utopian vision. The man that I'm referring to is Walt Disney. Walt Disney had plans to create a utopian city, which would then become the model for other utopian societies. After he had spent much of his life creating Happily Ever After, Walt Disney decided decided that he was going to try to bring happily ever after to life and that 20,000 people would live full-time with their families in this perfect place. The city was to be built in Florida on the same property as Disney's brand new theme park, Walt Disney World. Disney even released a film for Florida legislators in 1966 detailing exactly how the city would work. You can go onto YouTube and type this in and watch it. It's fascinating. This city was designed to be built in concentric circles. In the center would be the heart of the city, which would be housed under a temperature-controlled dome, ensuring that its patrons would never have to worry about inclement weather, dampening their plans, either in the evenings or after work, or during weekend pleasure trips. This city was to be filled with every type of entertainment available. Lavish hotels, restaurants from all over the world. Each of the city streets would reflect famous cultures around the earth. There would be no cars that would drive around the city. The city was to be accessed only by an electric monorail system, They move continually without ever stopping. Thus, the city's patrons would never be in danger of moving traffic on the street. Any cars, any supply trucks would access the city uh, via a circular underground tunnel with no stoplights 
ensuring a smooth flow of traffic. In the next circle was the green belt. The green belt would hold golf courses, gardens, ball fields, schools, churches, community centers. Again, providing all of the city's patrons with every form of entertainment and leisure that they could possibly need. The last circle was residential neighborhoods, conveniently accessed again by the monorail, stops in every neighborhood. The neighborhoods featured homes that were designed specifically in a way that would allow them to be updated all the time as technology advanced, as new designs became available. Any home could be recreated at whim, preventing you from ever having any kind of discontentment in your house. Any people that did have cars would be able to access the underground tunnel system, taking them into the city or out into the real world, which would also prevent any danger to children playing in the neighborhood. And that grueling rush hour commute, a thing of the past. The monorail would also connect people to the nearby industrial park. And this would be a place where top companies from around the world would push the advancement of technology and human practice. Finally, the patrons would be able to access Walt Disney World anytime by car or monorail. In Disney's words, he said this, There would be no more commute, no more dangerous streets, no more boredom or life's little irritations. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. It will always be a showcase to the world of the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. Sounds perfect, right? He named it the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, Epcot. Epcot was to be the blueprint for the future. But only two months after filming the proposal that was to be shown to the Florida government, Walt Disney died. And without his creative genius to drive them forward, the company of Imagineers decided that they would scrap the idea of a utopian city, and Epcot just became the latest tourist attraction for guests visiting the theme park. You have to wonder what would have happened if Disney had lived long enough to actually build the thing. Would it have been the happiest place on earth, free of boredom and all of life's little irritations? Would it have been the model for countless more utopian societies to be built around the world, giving every community a blueprint for the future? Or would the experiment have ultimately failed? Today, what I want to show you in the scriptures is that our hope for a perfect world will never be realized by any type of human effort. That the only way for us to have what we long for is to do something that most of us have no interest in doing. Today, I want to show you from the scriptures why we cannot have thy kingdom come without thy will be done. 
As British theologian Alan Redpath said, before we pray thy kingdom come, we must be willing to say, my kingdom go. You see, all of our social efforts are built on empty promises. Behind every commercial for a politician saying, vote for me, Behind every donation or participation request for an organization that addresses one of the world's ills. Behind every plea for a grassroots cause is an implicit promise. Support me and I will take us closer to utopia. Every campaign, every cause, every co-op is saying, if enough people help us to accomplish our stated goal, we'll be one step closer to an ideal world. Every single social effort exists to make the world a better place. And that's a good thing, right? You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who doesn't want that. Raise your hand if you don't want the world to be a better place. Exactly. No one. We all want that. We should be doing whatever we can to work toward that. But here is what humanity at large fails to realize. The brokenness that comes from our hands comes from the brokenness of our souls. And unless we are brought to life from the inside out, No effort will change us from the outside in. So, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Hopefully you did that a long time ago. And I'm the only one left to do so. (laughs) Matthew chapter 6, in verses 9 and 10. Scripture says this. Jesus speaking. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is, of course, the first part of the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer begins by acknowledging the hallowed nature of God, the holy name of God, the entirely set-apart otherness of God. And that bases the rest of this prayer on that foundation. The rest of this prayer is, is based on an effort to ensure that God's name remains hallowed. For more on this idea, see sermon number one of the series. Uh, we serve a king, not a president. Our main allegiance is to God. Everything else flows out of that. So what I want us to focus on today is verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this one little verse, I think there's enough for one day. This is not exhaustive, okay? What I'm going to give us today is not an exhaustive primer on all that is to be said and learned about social justice, okay? This is only scratching the surface, but I think there's enough for one day, for one hour, hopefully, um, for us to learn about how we as Christians are to approach social justice, politics, grassroots causes, social movements that seek to benefit the marginalized or the oppressed. 
Again, what we long for is utopia. To put that in the words of this verse, we long for the kingdom to come. And that's what we're created for. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the heart of man. He has designed us with a hope for utopia. He's designed us with a longing for a perfect world. And in our brokenness, we long for that even more. We hear about a place like Epcot, especially if you watch Walt Disney pitching Epcot. Again, I encourage you, go on YouTube this week and type in Walt Disney pitching Epcot. It's about a 20-minute YouTube video. Really, really cool to watch. The man was truly a genius. But we, we look at Epcot and all of us go, man, I really wish I could live there. That sounds great. But here's what most people don't understand or are unwilling to admit. Before we have a perfect kingdom, we must be ruled by a perfect king. And in the absence of a perfect king, the perfect kingdom will be very quickly destroyed. So here's point number one. If you're taking notes. Before the kingdom comes, the king must transform us. Before the kingdom comes, the king must transform us. Walt Disney made a critical miscalculation in his dream for utopia. Disney assumed that people are basically good. And if given a place to thrive, they would only do that. If you could somehow remove all of the external factors that are working against people, nothing would stop their progress. Now, Disney's not the only one to make this wrong assumption. In fact, anyone who puts their hope in a political process, in a grassroots movement, in a social cause, or anything similar, is also making this very same assumption. If we can somehow pass the right laws, if we can somehow put the right policies in place, if we can have the right type of government, if we can make sure that everyone is treated equally and fairly, if we can bring enough awareness to an issue, if we can show everyone a good enough example, if we can educate enough, if we can raise enough money to meet a need, if we can redistribute enough resources to the right places, if we can inspire enough people to the right action, if we can all just join our efforts and our hands, we'll right the wrongs, we'll fix the problems, we'll usher in utopia, and we will live happily ever after. But this is a gross miscalculation of our natural state as human beings. We are not basically good. In fact, we're not even just basically bad. It's actually far worse than that. Colossians 2.13 tells us, Before Christ you are dead in your transgressions and sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Dead is the word that Colossians uses. Dead in sin and in the uncircumcision of the flesh. That means that we are spiritual zombies. The walking dead. That is what we are before Jesus. We're not basically good 
And we're not even just alive, but bad. We are spiritually dead. Zombies. Until we are brought to life by the king. That term, uncircumcision of the flesh, refers to a lack of a covenant relationship with God. So not only are we dead, we're also completely on our own. That is why it's so important that the Lord's Prayer begins with, Hallowed be your name. Because we cannot begin with the goodness of man. That can't be where we start. We have to start with the holiness of God. Only then, when we start with the holiness of God, only when we realize that he is so holy, do we realize that we have fallen so far short of that holiness. And only then will we seek him for our salvation. Unless we understand how desperate we are for him, we will think that we can do it on our own. And all of our effort will go into that. And so if we skip that step, every effort will ultimately fail in an epic way. If we focus on the hands, but we skip the heart, we will ultimately lose both. And what we will get, at best, is Epcot filled with zombies. Even if you make a completely perfect place, but then you fill it with zombies, you no longer have the happiest place on earth. You have something terrifying. Even if Disney had, uh, had succeeded in building Utopia, it would not have lasted long. After all, There has been one perfect society in history. Just one. You know when it was? The Garden of Eden. Okay, that was the only society that existed in perfection. With no external factors pushing against it. With no sin, no death, no brokenness, nothing wrong. Everything literally perfect. They're surrounded with everything they could ever need or want. And do you know how long it took them for them to ruin Utopia? One chapter. (laughs) One. We don't know how long chronologically it was between Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3. Whether it was days, weeks, months, doesn't matter. It wasn't long, okay? And there was only two people there, not 20,000. Two people lived in perfection, and they ruined it real quick. We would be foolish to assume that it would be any different for us. If we focus on the hands before we allow God to change the heart, we become whitewashed tombs. And we don't even see how much we live in hypocrisy. Where we say that we're so righteous, but we actually are not. I'll give you an example, one that many of us in the church are passionate about, and that is abortion. Now again, I know that there's a lot of people on various parts of the political spectrum who are listening, so this may be one of those places where I say something that you disagree with, okay? Hang with me. I believe that abortion is wrong. I believe that it is the ending of a human life. Now I agree that no one except for God should tell anyone what to do with their own body. That being understood, 
I believe that abortion violates that right for the little body that it is killing without any choice of its own. And I understand that in saying that, that may be offensive to those who are on the left. Now let me take an opportunity to offend those on the right. There are many people who show their fight for social change on the outside in an issue like abortion, but they are not even themselves living a life that values life in their own home. Is the outward holiness that they show the world and to the church reflected behind the closed doors of their own house? For many of us who are pro-life, We spend a lot of time humanizing a fetus, as we should, I believe, as we should. But then at the same time, turn around and dehumanize the mother of that child. Why? Some might say because the baby is innocent. And we act like it's innocence that makes a child worthy of our love. That unwed mother, on the other hand, is not so innocent. And so we act as though she is not worthy of our love and our support. Have you ever considered that if innocence is what makes you worthy of love, you and I had better get on board with getting treated like garbage because you and I are about as innocent as sin. Have you ever considered that rampant abortion is not all the fault of the Supreme Court. It is, at least in part, the fault of the failure of the church in America. If if the church in America was doing all that it could to love people, if it was doing all that it could to provide emotional, financial, and spiritual support to women in need... Do you think that nearly as many of them would be seeking out abortions? Do you think as many people would be trying to find hope in relationships, in sexual pleasure? Even if they did, do you think that if a woman knew that she would be loved unconditionally, that she would have a community wrap its arms around her, that she would walk into a church or into an abortion clinic? Instead, many women avoid the church altogether, knowing that they will be met with sideways glances at best, an all-out, full-frontal assault at worst. Many believe that they have nowhere else to go. So they're led to believe that abortion is a healthy option. I'm not saying that abortion would be eradicated altogether if the church was doing all that it could. But do I believe that it would be less? Absolutely. Here's another one. A lot of Christians take up picket signs and do all they can politically to fight against gay marriage. They'll do so with the argument that homosexuality is a perversion that is undermining traditional values. But statistics show that two-thirds of Christian men and an increasing number of Christian women are regular visitors to porn sites on the internet. 
So for all the public displays of wanting a biblical sexual ethic, many of us are guilty of sexual perversion when no one is watching. I will raise my hand publicly and admit that that is where I too used to be. Do I believe that the Bible supports homosexual practice? No. But do I also believe that many of us in the church have grossly and terribly handled this? Absolutely. That many of us have failed to lovingly understand and address this? Definitely. That there's a whole lot more nuance than we let on? Absolutely. That we have treated people with vitriol instead of virtue? Yes. That's a conversation I'd love to have with any of you who'd like to have it. And I would hope that any person who is LGBTQ would feel loved, valued, humanized, and delighted in, in this church. The thing is this. Those who are on the right tend to look out their windows and bemoan the fact that America is becoming increasingly immoral. America is getting worse But America is not getting increasingly immoral. America is not getting more sinful. We're just showing our cards more. What's already happening behind closed doors is spilling out into the square. And our homes are so filled with sin that the doors burst open and everyone's sin is shown. And then they look at each other and shrug and say, oh, you too, huh? Well, let's just make it a law so that we don't have to hide it. The point of all this is that we as people, all of us, every one of us, are deeply flawed, deeply sinful people. We cannot hope to try to build utopia without being transformed from the inside out. Before God can bring the kingdom, he must transform us. He must first bring us from death to life. That is why in the same breath that Jesus tells us to ask, thy kingdom come, he asks that God would cleanse us from our sins. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Even a perfect environment cannot change an evil heart. Only God can do that. Here's point number two. Before the kingdom can come, we must be fully submitted to the king. Before the kingdom can come, we must be fully submitted to the king. Notice that thy kingdom come is immediately followed by thy will be done. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have thy kingdom come without thy will be done. They are intrinsically tied, connected, and impossible to separate. You see, many people want someone, God, a politician, a cause, a movement, some kind of social effort. We want someone to take the pain away and create a utopia. But few of us want to then submit ourselves to the rule of a holy king. We love to say, give us a good place. We do not love to say, and you're in charge of it. We want the keys to Disney World and then the ability to go in and do whatever we please. 
Imagine for a moment that someone offered you the keys to Disney World and said, it's all yours. You go in, you do whatever you want. There are no rules. It's the happiest place on earth. Go on in. That sounds awesome, right? It sounds wonderful. You'd ride all the rides. You'd eat all the good food. You'd meet all the Disney characters. But let's say you're not the only person to be given those keys. Let's say the keys to the kingdom are given to everybody. How long do you think it would be before Disney World as we know it collapses? Very quickly, there would be anarchy. You get enough people without any oversight whatsoever, and soon it's going to be destroyed. We have seen it over and over and over and over and over again. We cannot ask for a good place without also submitting to a good king. Before that kingdom can come, we must be transformed from the inside out and we must be willing to submit to the will of the Father. One commentator named Bruce Hurt said it this way, Thy kingdom come is related to thy will be done in the sense that a genuine, complete submission to God's will naturally flows out of an undivided, absolute allegiance to his kingdom. An undivided, absolute allegiance to the kingdom is what we must be submitted to if we will ever have any hope of utopia. Thy kingdom come is followed by, or or rather deepened by, thy will be done. It is a prayer of submission. We do not pray for a changed world without first praying for a changed heart. And our hearts can only be changed when they're given completely to the king. Another commentator, Kent Hughes, put it this way. When we pray, your kingdom come, we pray for three things. First, we pray for the final and ultimate establishment of God's kingdom. For the day when all of creation will freely call him Abba, dearest father. There is an almost martial, triumphant ring to thy kingdom come. Second, we pray your kingdom come so that we will be conformed to his will in this world. As we pray this, we are handing ourselves over to the grace of God so that he may do with us whatever he pleases. Your kingdom come in my life. Use me for your kingdom. And third, your kingdom come is a prayer that God's rule will come to others through us. It is a prayer for Christ to work his revolutionary power in a fallen world. Your kingdom come in my family. Your kingdom come in my job, in my city, in my nation. Walt Disney believed that paradise boiled down to amusements and pleasures and lack of difficulty. But would you believe that paradise is actually living under the reign of the king and doing his will? Would you believe that freedom, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want, but being able to fully do what you were created to do. Yet another commentator, J.C. Ryle, says this, 
we here pray that God's laws may be obeyed by men as perfectly, readingly, and unceasingly as they are by angels in heaven. We ask that those who do not obey his laws now may be taught to obey them, and that those who do obey them may obey them better. Our truest happiness is perfect submission to God's will. It is the purest love to pray that all mankind may know it, obey it, and submit to it. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, it is not merely asking that God's perfect world would descend. It is asking for the Lord to have complete rule over our hearts. After which, we will ask him to restore creation to perfection. That will happen at the end, and we want that end to come. But until then, we pray for God to build the new world within us. And that is leading us to point number three. The kingdom in its fullness will one day come. The kingdom in its fullness will one day come. One of the most common misconceptions that we have about heaven is that it is a place that we will go. Now, hearing that, you might go, what on earth are you talking about? We all talk about going to heaven, right? We view heaven as being this otherworldly place, somewhere entirely separated from here. We view it as some other by and by. But scripture actually teaches that in the end, heaven is brought here. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 5, John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. See, utopia will come. Utopia will be built and it will be brought here. And all of creation that has been broken by sin will be restored. It will be restored to perfection. It will be rebuilt. But before that happens, he has to rebuild us to prepare us for the day when kingdom comes. And when the kingdom comes, it will not be an experimental prototype It will be perfect and permanent. Our pleasure is not going to come from novelties. It's not going to come from rides. It's not going to come from great shopping and dining. It will be found in fellowship with the king. And all of creation longs for that day. Romans chapter 8 verses 22 through 24 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. There is no politician that can bring this about. Only God can. Only God can change our hearts. Only under his rule will we ever be free. Only he will ever usher in the utopia that we so desperately long for. So, you may be asking, where does that leave us now? Where does that leave us in October 2020 with the presidential election looming and a thousand different social issues boiling over right now? I want to leave you with a final point that may seem at first to contradict everything I have said so far. Point number four. As we wait for the kingdom to come in its fullness, we are called to build toward it. As we wait for the kingdom to come in its fullness, we are called to build toward it. It might be easy, if I ended right now, to walk away from tonight's sermon thinking that we have no responsibility whatsoever to social justice because God, he's going to take care of all that someday. We might be accused of being so heavenly minded That we are of no earthly good. But that is not what God has called us to. We cannot miss that Jesus told his disciples to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's not someday, that's right now. If you were to read Isaiah chapter 1, this would become abundantly clear. In Isaiah chapter 1, God is telling Israel why he is rejecting their empty religious rituals. You see, the Israelites at this point were still doing the things that God commanded them to do in their worship services. They were offering sacrifices, they were burning incense, they were bringing things before the altar, they were offering up prayers, they were singing songs of worship, but God tells the Israelites in Isaiah chapter 1, I don't want to hear it anymore, I've grown tired of it, I'm sick of it, it's an abomination to me, I hate your rituals, I hate your sacrifices, your incense burns up to me like stink, I do not want it anymore. He tells them that he's tired of their sacrifices and prayers. He hates their religious feasts. And that they trample his court every time they walk into his temple. Why does he say that to them? He says that to them because they have, he says, hands filled with blood. He will not listen to their prayers because they are walking in evil. No matter what religious rituals they perform in their services, no matter what godly things they do in their community, they are walking in evil. And so here's what he commands them in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, 
Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Let me read that one more time, okay? The Israelites are walking in evil. He will not accept their rituals. He will not accept their sacrifices until they... Make themselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God tells his people, your religion is false to me. Unless you are living a life of righteousness that has turned away from sin that is walking in faithfulness, and that is actively working toward social justice. Elsewhere in Micah 6.8, he tells them, I have shown you what is good, what I the Lord require. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That means... That it is impossible to place our hope in the king and place our allegiance in his kingdom unless we're actively involved in building it right now. So we place all of our hope in an eternal kingdom and yet we also participate in the process here and now. It is both and. Like I was talking about last week how the kingdom is already but it's also not yet. We have all of our hope in its alreadiness, but we place all of our work in its not yetness. That is how we walk in faithfulness. Our hope is not in temporary efforts. We're not, we're not placing all of our hope in a temporary effort, but we participate in it anyway, because in doing so, we are ushering in the kingdom. We are obeying what God has commanded us. So the interplay of these uh, competing ideas may look a little bit like this. If we ask the question, should Christians care about social justice efforts in politics? Over here we have, yes, because every Christian's duty includes serving the poor, the hungry, and the needy. So we ought to put together a very wide repertoire of tools in order to do that. If you're thinking to yourself, what can I do to help the underprivileged? Part of it might be volunteering at a homeless ministry. Part of it might be donating money to a nonprofit. Part of it might be uh, participating in a missions effort in your church. And part of it might be supporting a political candidate who will be fighting for bills and laws to be passed to serve the underprivileged. It might be participating in a social justice cause or movement. Social justice efforts are part of a balanced approach. So yes.
Am I back? Sweet. On the other hand, social justice efforts shouldn't stand alone as our only participation. Maybe not even our main participation. Our main effort is through gospel ministry that seeks to feed the soul as well as the body. Social justice efforts are good and we should participate in wise ways even as we understand that they're not the source of eternal hope. Again, on this side we have, yes, imagine for a moment that you are a Christian living in a country where it's illegal to follow Jesus. And there are a lot of countries like that around the world. But then as you're living in that nation, someone rises to power saying, listen, if enough people in the country want it, we're going to make Christianity legal. So let's have a vote. Do you think that any of the Christians in that country would say, well, I don't really think we should care about politics? No, of course not. They would go out in droves and say, "Uh, we vote to make this thing legal. Put my name down. So yes, we should care about political effort. On the other hand, we should also note That political policies are a reflection of the cultural zeitgeist. That word zeitgeist means the mindset of the people. What the collective society believes and thinks. Their moral values. Typically, politics follow the zeitgeist. Not the other way around. Political policies are enacted because there's already enough people in the country who are already pushing for something. So in a sense, politics are reactionary. If you really want to change the world, do so in a grassroots effort, which politics will eventually catch up to. On the yes side, you have examples in the Bible of people like Esther, Daniel, Joseph, and several others who were involved in their government and used their influence to Uh, further the kingdom of God. On the other hand, none of them ran for office. They were faithful in a situation that they got put into without a choice of their own. And so God put them and all of us in positions where we're responsible to use whatever power we have for the kingdom of God. Those people just happened to be in positions where they also had political power. So, there's this interplay of should I, shouldn't I, but it's both. Where we have eternal hope and we also have temporary action. I like the way that Russell Moore put it when he said, We are Americans best when we're not Americans first. We're Americans best when we're not Americans first. Briefly, take the early church, for example, in the book of Acts. The early church distributed wealth to make sure that no one was needy. Was that socialism? No. Why? Because it wasn't mandated by a government. It wasn't a political ideology. It was people in the church, all united, giving to each other freely. That is something that is impossible for a political party or social effort to create. Only Jesus can create that kind of generosity in people's hearts. When you give them Jesus, generosity follows. When you try to legislate generosity, you get neither generosity nor Jesus. 
Jesus himself summed up the law and the commandments by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and this is the key for today, love your neighbor as yourself. That means fighting for your neighbor. Serving your neighbor. Making sure your neighbor's needs are met. Making sure your neighbor is fed, clothed, sheltered, loved, treated equally. And who is your neighbor? Everyone. As you love and serve your neighbor, you will be building an experimental prototype community of tomorrow. You will be showing the world what they're waiting for and inviting them to join in. You will hope in the future kingdom as you usher it closer. You will fight for change from the heart outward. And as you do, more and more people will be welcomed into the kingdom of God and one day enjoy utopia forever. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, I pray that it would lead us to action after it leads us to reflection. God, I pray that you would help every one of us to be honest before you about the ways that we have participated in marginalizing or oppressing others. That we would be self-examining and allowing you to show us the places where we have not fought for the kingdom to come. Where we have not submitted to your will being done. Show us, Lord, places where we are not submitted to you as king. Where we want the keys to Disney and the rights to do whatever we want. Help us, Lord, to see the places that we need to lay at your feet and give you complete and total control. Lord, we thank you that you are a good king who loves everyone. You are a good king who lays his life down for every image bearer, who seeks justice, who gives mercy, who rains down grace. Lord, I pray that all of us would be brought to a place of submission. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who is here or watching online or listening to the podcast who has never come to that place of submission, who has never said, I want to to submit my life to that king, Lord, may tonight be the night that you draw them in. May tonight be the night that somebody says, I need to give my life to Jesus as king. Lord, will you be the savior king tonight and may we as a church work towards ushering in the kingdom that is already but not yet help us to live these things out but i pray as we sing to you now that our hearts would reflect that your holy spirit would would lead us into truth that, that each person would sense the tug of your spirit leading them in a personal way we pray this in jesus name Amen. If you would stand, we will close in our final song.